So this episode's all about dreams and fantasies. What we might learn from Putin's delayed address to the Federal Assembly, and what we can learn from Russian science fiction. I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. But now, on with today's programme. Before I start, just a couple of notes. First of all, I'm in the throes of relocating from DC back to the United Kingdom. That plus the fact that then the week after, around the time of the anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine, I shall be spending a few days in Budapest as a guest of the political capital think tank. Now that means that for the next couple of weeks, it may well be that my uh, podcast output will be rather limited. The second thing is, I've been fielding a few requests for copies of writings of mine that are published behind newspapers' paywalls. Now, I do distribute a few things to patrons of mine, but generally speaking, although I know the paywall is a real pain in the backside, nonetheless, in this day and age, it's how most media outlets actually make their money. And therefore, I don't honestly feel that I can sort of generally distribute text. So I'm sorry about that, but that is unfortunately the way the world is. Of course, you could become a patron. Anyway, without moving too much into advertising, let me talk first of all about the fact that we've now got a date, the 21st of February, for Putin's rather delayed but uh, constitutionally mandated address to the Federal Assembly and essentially address to the nation. Now, what's it going to be about? Well, the honest answer is we don't know in detail. Komsomolskaya Pravda, though, was very bullish, which may mean it's just guessing or may mean they've had a leak, asserting that essentially it would have three parts. The first will be specifically about the current progress in the quote-unquote special military operation which would try and sort of be upbeat and talk about how things have stabilised and looking well. Secondly, looking at the home front, and again, trying to basically make the point that uh, Russia has weathered Western sanctions and everything else unexpectedly well, and that, uh, you know, although everyone has to tighten their belts, nonetheless, things will be fine. And then the third section would focus on the annexed new regions, which, of course, are to a large extent not under Russian control, but that's a minor detail that I don't think Putin would be touching on. But again, trying to put some kind of a positive spin on quite what's going on there. Now, obviously, this is essentially a piece of political theatre. It is an attempt to lay out what he thinks has been you know, his, his take on the past year, which will obviously put it in the most positive terms for him, which does not necessarily mean upbeat. After all, you know, he is trying to mobilise the country by presenting the current situation as 
virtually an existential threat, kind of akin to the Second World War, however ridiculous that is. And therefore, he has to find some way of balancing the nature of the challenge that all of the West is against us and that Ukraine is just simply their um, weapon or instrument, with at the other time you know, having to keep people's spirits up by presenting an upbeat notion that we can win this. So, you know, that, that is going to be a, a, a tricky balance. And to be perfectly honest, judging by his other recent statements, including his New Year's Eve address, I'm not convinced he's going to be able to thread that needle particularly well. But also, I think what's going to be interesting is how we link that to the other evidence about what seems to be happening within the state. Because clearly, the expectation is that this is going to be a long war. The kind of reforms, quote-unquote, the kind of changes, let's say, that have taken place, the sort of militarization of society and of the economy, these are not the kind of measures that you carry out if you think the war is going to last one, two, three months. They're the kind of things that you do if you think the war might well last one, two, three years. So, you know, th this is really is about a, a fundamental restructuring of the state, its relationship to the economy, and its relationship to society as a whole. And also, as we see this move towards the long haul, it's, it's beginning to, to lead to certain shifts in how the state operates that in some ways is abandoning short-term quick fixes, which were brought in when this was meant to be a war whose duration was going to be measured by weeks or at most months, and into this much more institutional level. And one of the victims of this may well be, I mean, perhaps I'm being too optimistic, but may well be Yevgeny Prigozhin, everyone's favourite chef, troll master and condottiere. Now, he was recently talking to the mill blogger Wargonzo, in which he gave uh, an interesting prediction of the sort of time frames of this kind of war. He was suggesting that basically if the goal was simply to take the Donbass region, then it was going to take one and a half to two years more, which is really actually quite a... I mean, potentially accurate, but again, not really an optimistic perspective. But whereas if it's actually to push all the way to the Dnieper and in effect chop Ukraine in half, then that could take three years. Now, on one level, one could say, well, that's optimistic in that he thinks that uh, Russia will still be able to be fighting this war in three years' time and that there's any chance that they're actually going to be able to make those kind of territorial victories. But it also, I think, suggests his attempt to kind of position himself in a slightly different way, less the radical bruiser, which has been his persona up to now, and more in the sense of, for want of a better word, a national statesman and a figure who's going to be around for the long haul. And it's interesting that this coincides at a time when actually there is further evidence that he's coming under pressure. In particular, he has formally announced that he is no longer going to be recruiting convicts from the labor camp system. Now, the, the claim, again, it's quite sort of delightfully preposterous, is that there have been just so many applications from Americans to come and fight for Wagner that, frankly, he doesn't need the convicts. Well, I, I will believe that when I start seeing legions of Americans appearing on the Russian side of the battlefield. I think that was just, again, another example of trolling. Actually, the truth seems to be that after you know, an initial 
moderately enthusiastic take-up from people who thought that, well, you know, six months fighting in return for freedom and a certain chunk of money, that's not a bad deal, realise the degree to which they are basically being used as ammunition, as expendable cannon fodder. I mean, the, the, the casualties, again, you know, we don't know for certain, but the sort of figures, the lower-end figures seem to be at least 10,000 dead or wounded, and that is probably likely to be very much a lower-end. And, well, surprise, surprise, the supply of people has begun to dry up because we should never, ever underestimate the extent to which Russia's labour and prison system is essentially uh, interconnected by amazingly rapid and effective conduits of information so people find out. What's more, it's interesting that the military now seems to be stepping into that particular vacuum. Now, this is, I think, being operated on a rather different basis. Uh, first of all, the military have made it clear that unlike Wagner, they won't take people of under 21 years. And certainly they've also made very clear that there will be no murderous vigilante justice being meted out. That essentially, if you are volunteering, then you, you operate under military discipline, not the sort of informal, uh, almost gangster discipline of, of Wagner. The bizarre thing is that I mean, compared with Wagner, I think actually the, the convicts will get a rather more, well, not so much rather more humane and regular, but shall I say rather less inhumane and irregular treatment from the Russian military. Perhaps most important of all, whereas Wagner would basically take anyone, even if actually this person was a 17-year-old burglar whose only sort of quote-unquote military experience is sharpening a toothbrush into a shiv while they're in the zone, zone being a term for the labour camp system, Actually, the military is looking for people who actually have proper military records already, and ideally paratroopers, marines, these, these, these kind of forces. So, you know, it, it's interesting, although it's not quite the same, but nonetheless, that is the military, one would almost say, parking its tanks on Prigozhin's lawn, you know, given how, how critical he has been, but doing so because he'd already backed away. Because the interesting thing is actually Wagner's use of, of convicts, yes, for a while it gave them a you know, very um, extensive array of very poor quality soldiers, but it also seems to have essentially scared off their other sources of recruitment. Let's be honest, you know, if you are a regular soldier who's now thinking of going back, you know, you, you did your time and now you're thinking of making some money by going back to the fight, or maybe you even think that it's a patriotic duty. Given that you have all sorts of other places where you can volunteer your, your service and make the same amount of money, would you really go and join Wagner knowing that your unit might well be made up of rapists and murderers from the labour camp system? Unsurprisingly, the answer is no. Now, look, we should always be worried about the risks of writing Prigozhin off. It may well be that he'll find some new sources of, of, of soldiers and cannon fodder. I mean, if one looks at what Wagner is doing in Africa, for example, it's pulled out a lot of its ethnic Russian soldiers. But instead, what it has been doing has been recruiting locals, particularly people from other African countries, so that they, they don't have kind of local uh, sympathies. Who knows? We might end up seeing more soldiers from Syria or soldiers from Africa or whatever being recruited by Wagner, brought into the country, and then again thrown into the meat grinder of the war. So, you know, we can't say Prigozhin is gone by any means, but it is interesting that in some ways he's losing his old specialisms and he's presumably trying to reposition himself, and obviously that 
creates the potential for you know some kind of move against him by his enemies but above all i think this again this represents a, a slow attempt to try and bring some order to the battlefield gerasimov his appointment was in part pitched as increasing coordination because there was a real problem with all these different militias, private armies, National Guard, military, Wagner and so forth, that no notionally you know, overall joint commander actually had authority over all these forces. Well, I don't think just the fact that it's Gerasimov instead of a sort of Ekin is going to make a difference. Instead, I think this may be being, beginning to be tackled on a more institutional basis. And it may well be that we will see Wagner's role, if it's going to be maintained at all, but actually replaced by the other mercenary groups that exist, such as Patriot, which are actually much more under the control of the Ministry of Defence, precisely to try and sort of squeeze out the room for all these pesky freelancers with their own ideas. So we may be seeing things happening on the battlefield, which actually will squeeze out someone like Prigozhin, It'd be interesting to see what happens to the Kadyrovtsi, given that Ramzan Kadyrov is an equally inconvenient presence there. Not that, well, not that he's anywhere near the battlefield, but in terms of his, the way he basically protects his Kadyrovtsi and ensures that they get to Instagram a lot, but fight only a little. At the same time, we have some interesting, well, interesting to a nerd like me, moves within the Security Council Secretariat. Now, a quick reminder. The Security Council itself is the body that brings together all the key movers and shakers within the system who have some role within security, however broadly conceptualised. So it's not just the Minister of Defence and the Chief of the General Staff and the heads of the intelligence agencies and such like. It's also you know, the relevant ministers, perhaps, who are involved in the defence industrial complex. It's obviously the Prime Minister and so forth. I don't think the Security Council really matters all that much. It's certainly not a decision-making institution. It's not even that consultative. I mean, when we do actually find any kind of quote-unquote consultation, it tends to be, if not quite so extreme, on the order of that uh, now infamous meeting before the invasion which is actually more an exercise in authority and bullying on Putin's part and ensuring that all of his people are incriminated in his moves. That's not real consultation. However, what to me really matters is the Secretariat of the Security Council, which is the, you know, the, the body that is under Nikolai Patrushev, my, my usual um, obsession. And Increasingly, this has become, over the years, and particularly because of Patrushev's role, the filter through which almost all crucial information, which isn't sort of direct intelligence briefing, relating to security, and again, security is conceptualized very broadly here, so it also includes you know, environmental and informational and so forth, reaches Putin's desk. So in other words, these are the people who have absolutely no decision-making authority, but like any good Sir Humphrey if people know, yes, minister or yes, prime minister, they, on the other hand, get to shape the boss's agenda, promote particular problems or proposals onto his desk, keep others off his desk, or at least try to keep others off his desk, and most importantly of all, paint a picture of the world for the boss. 
you know, basically by deciding, you know, who gets to brief him and, and all that kind of thing. So, you know, in my opinion, the, secret the Secretariat of the Security Council really does matter and actually has become quite a, a malign force, as you'd expect, given that essentially Patrushev has reshaped it in his image. Anyway, we've had a couple of personnel moves of late. Yuri Averyanov, who's a 73-year-old with a background, well, in the military, but essentially as a military bureaucrat. So you know, he, formally speaking, had the rank of lieutenant general, but mm, it's not, not lieutenant general as in other cases. Anyway, he has been removed from the, the position of first deputy secretary, which he'd held since 2013. Uh, I mean... In part, this is a retirement, but hey, the, the, the lucky devil has been appointed as assistant to the continuingly raving Dmitry Medvedev in one of his roles, not his Security Council role, but his, instead Medvedev's role atop the United Russia Party. So again, this is a classic kind of rustication that you know people don't tend to just retire directly into obscurity. They sort of scale down. Now, he has been replaced by Rashid Nurgaliev. Now, Nurgaliev was already a deputy, just not the first deputy, uh, head of the uh, secretariat. He's a Volga Tata who was born in Kazakhstan, a career security officer, and indeed something of a client of Patrushev's. He served under him in the Karelian Directorate of the old KGB, and then again in the FSB's Internal Security Directorate. In 2003, Nurgaliev was shifted across and made... Well, actually, no, in 2002, he was made Deputy Interior Minister. In 2003, he was made Interior Minister. Big move up, and also something of... A, well, I don't want to say takeover bid by the FSB of the Interior Ministry because the FSB is that much more powerful anyway, but certainly, shall I say, a, a reflection of where power really lay. Now, Nurgaliev was, I think it's fair to say, not the most successful and certainly not the most loved interior minister. I have to say that in all my interactions with, with Russian police officers, I can honestly say I never found one who had anything good to say about Nurgaliev, uh, although they absolutely had a lot to say about him. And when he was uh, you know, eventually moved in 2012 and replaced by a career police officer, General Kolokoltsev, who's still there at the moment, you know, that was actually greeted with a considerable amount of relief. Nurgaliev, let's be perfectly honest, was and is essentially a political police officer. And that was the kind of mindset he brought to the MVD, to the Interior Ministry, and that was one of the reasons why he was so out of step with the police, particularly at a time when actually there was a process of not just a professionalisation of the police, but you know, a real campaign to actually try and improve relationships of the police with society. Not because the police are warm and fuzzy individuals who just necessarily want to be your friend, but just simply because it makes their lives a lot easier, and any good police officer realises that. If people are willing to actually come and talk to you and give evidence and whatever else, your life gets easier. On the other hand, it was quite hard to square that with Nurgaliev's often rather maximalist uh, pronouncements and, again, his emphasis on political policing over everything else. So, you know, he, he wasn't missed. But the point is, I mean, his role, in part, I think, turned out to be a bit of a sort of a sinecure, uh, initially at least, at the Secretariat. Certainly the first few years, 
I hesitate to say that he didn't seem to do very much. Um, I'm inclined to suggest, though, that uh, you know it, it was seen as a kind of a, a bit of a holiday. Maybe he was licking his wounds. You know, why don't the cops love me? It's very hard to see any evidence until mm, around maybe 2017 that actually Nurgaliyev really was making a difference. But then he started to get the bit between his teeth and increasingly actually became an active player within, shall we say, Security Council Secretariat politics, but in particular echoing his patron and master, Panthrushev, on these, the whole the issues about the fact that... Uh, the Kremlin, the regime, and Russia as a whole was facing a serious threat of subversion, that the domestic uh, political opposition and dissident movement was really knowingly or unknowingly nothing more than a tool of the uh, nefarious Western secret services and such like. And I think his elevation to first deputy secretary um, and he's 66, so you know I wouldn't say he's a stripling by the standards of the current Russian regime, but certainly he, you know, he would seem to have a few more years in him. Does I think represent a shift towards the internal security role, and you know very much sort of basically trying trying to beef up that side of the secretariat. I think we may well see a Nurgaliev FSB alliance becoming rather more significant especially if, as is really quite likely, Alexander Bortnikov, the current director of the FSB, retires soon. And there you know, may be that moment of, of interregnum. You know, Nurgaliev will be there to, shall I say, steady the ship and make sure there's no slackening in the uh, domestic campaign against all these vicious people who just hate Russia so much. In some ways, even more interesting, though, is, that, OK, so Averyanov goes as... as first deputy. Nurgaliev steps up from deputy secretary to first, which obviously create, created a vacancy. And that vacancy as a regular deputy head of the, of the secretariat was filled by Alexei Shevtsov. Not, as I discover, is, isn't Google a wonderful thing, the Olympic Greco-Russian wrestler, nor indeed the Ukrainian YouTuber, but instead a rather low-profile 43-year-old who graduated from Umgimo, the Foreign Ministry's University, produced a quite widely distributed uh, postgraduate um, article, very much stressing the importance of the union between Russia and Belarus and the sort of the, the challenges in trying to make that uh, a closer one. And then he then moved into the, the realm of finance, where at Venetia Economic Bank, he became the head of blockchain technology development. And he very much in recent years has been associated precisely with these issues of both financial development in the sort of the more extreme ends towards the kind of cryptocurrency end, but also information security. And again, if I'm trying to try and read into this, I think it fits two particular developments that we've also seen of late. Russia was initially pretty implacably opposed to the idea of cryptocurrencies, which are these kind of electronically generated currencies, which most importantly of all, are not backed or regulated by any nation or bank, but instead they exist in the wild, in, you know, on, 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 uh, in the virtual realm. 
and are particularly backed up precisely by blockchain. And no, I have no intention of demonstrating my ignorance by trying to uh, summarise that and no doubt getting it wrong. In this context, though, facing this growing uh, sort of economic war from the West, and one that is very, very much anchored on the West's pivotal role within global financial systems, and therefore its capacity to strangle certain sort of avenues for Russia, all of a sudden, the Russia that was so opposed to cryptocurrency, precisely because it represented a challenge to the state's power, is now actually getting quite interested in it as precisely something that can actually bypass and undermine what they would regard as Western financial imperialism. So I think this is something that we're going to see developed, but also the information security angle, particularly when it comes to the, the financial dimension. There is a real concern that if relations with the West get even worse, if, shall we say, this non-kinetic war gets more serious, though still not kinetic, that Russia may well face cyber attacks and so forth from the West. And again, this is something that, uh, you know, that, that, that there's quite a bit of... Uh, I hesitate to use that word chatter. It always makes it sound as if we're trying to sort of present ourselves as being you know, clued in to what's going on in all kinds of different uh, underworld circles. But nonetheless, you know, th th there are enough hints, I would suggest, around that suggest that precisely that one of the priorities for this year for the Russian security apparatus will precisely be trying to cyber-proof, Western cyber-proof economic as well as political structures in, in Russia. And again... I think Shevtsov's appointment is not so much a cause but a symptom of that. It reflects, I mean, I think in a way one can often look at these appointments as giving us some sense of what are the perceived uh, priorities for, for the future. So, okay, in some ways, if you think of those three elements of the address of the Federal Assembly, according to Komsomolskaya Pravda, in terms of the military operation, well, I've talked about Prigozhin. But we also actually have to talk about what's going on on the ground. And in particular, look, there's been a, a terrible new wave of missile attacks which are being sort of presented as the start of the spring offensive. I'm not necessarily convinced that it is. But what we also have seen has been this, this push, and again, for, from the Russians' point of view, very destructive, push um, against Vukladar, which has led to some serious losses amongst, you know, not, and we're not talk, just talking about... Uh, cannon fodder convicts, we're talking about, uh, you know, proper troops. Now, this particular offensive, I would suggest, may well turn out to be the first real evidence of new overall Joint, Command Joint Forces Commander Gerasimov's mandate or instructions to deliver some victories, whatever the cost. And I think that it may well be that we, we're going to see more such attacks Gerasimov, after all, was appointed because his predecessor, Sorovikin, looked more interested in avoiding defeat than actually winning anything. And whatever Gerasimov may think about the odds, the fact is he has to try and demonstrate to the boss that at least he's giving it a go. So, you know, although it's not much fun for the soldiers who are thrown into these meat grinders, I think we may well see more operations like Vukledar. They don't necessarily mean, though, that we're seeing the start of the big spring offensive. I mean, they may. I, I just think I, I think we need to be agnostic. And from the Russians' point of view, 
Look, I, I think we can probably discount some of the more outlandish claims that have come out of Kiev of late to suggest that actually Russia is going to mobilise yet another wave of up to half a million troops. I'm not convinced they actually could metabolise that many soldiers, if nothing else, to say nothing of the huge political costs. But nonetheless, you know, we are going to see the, the, the Russian spring offensive. The big questions are going to be quite when and what are they going to try and, and do. I can't help feel that the, the big picture objectives of taking back the Donbass at the moment just seems pretty much impossible. I do wonder if, again, it's just simply going to be focusing on places like uh, Bakhmut, pushing out uh, towards Abdiivka, you know, anything that just simply means that there is a, a trophy that can be laid at Putin's feet. Once again, politics trumps the real calculations of the war. More interesting in some ways is going to be what the, what the Ukrainians do. Now, there's obviously a lot of furore about the decision to send tanks and uncertainty as to how soon those tanks actually will be in the battlefield and how they're going to be used or whatever. But the key thing is that the presence of, of such forces you know, I think reflects the way the Ukrainians are having to, and, and rightly, shifting from a very sort of artillery-led, attritional style of fighting if nothing else, because there's real questions as to how, how long the West can continue to refuel the war machine with the kind of ammunition that, that is burning through into one that is much more about a fluid combined arms operation, which also doesn't uh, work on the assumption that the Ukrainians may well have more troops than the Russians in theatre. I mean, that has been often one of the features of the last year of fighting, but you know, with all these mobilised reservists, that may well not be the case. The point is, though, that I think it's fair to say we're moving into an even more unpredictable phase of the war. The winter, you know, for all the fighting that has gone on, you know, has really been a period of, of largely of consolidation for both sides. Both sides, for different reasons, different political reasons, do need to make some kind of gains in the spring. You know, Putin needs to be assuaged. And also, not quite so uh, arbitrarily, the Russians need to be able to demonstrate that they're still in the fight. They need to make this point that the war is going to drag on because they're trying to undermine the West's will to continue. And likewise, for exactly the same reasons, the Ukrainians need to demonstrate not just a return on investment to the West, but also that they have a chance. And that is why, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see some particular drive for a, you know, a high-profile and genuinely mean, meaningful target like the city of Melitopol. If the Ukrainians can take that, they break the land corridor to Crimea. It's a way of putting pressure on Crimea, further isolating it, without directly threatening it in a way that might make Putin panic and feel he has to escalate. But it would also actually be you know, a, a major military success that demonstrates both to Moscow and perhaps even more importantly to Western capitals that momentum is on their side. So you know, both sides need to demonstrate success. Both sides have been trying to think about how to do things differently, and whether or not the Russians actually are able to do things differently remains to be seen, but, but certainly you know, we shouldn't underestimate their capacity to adapt. I mean, on the whole, their, their generals may not be nice chaps, and, but we shouldn't assume they're all imbeciles. And obviously the Ukrainians have demonstrated an even greater flexibility and, and capacity to think of new ways of fighting. So although Putin in his 
address to the Federal Assembly will very much try and give the sense that everything is under control. I think we're heading into a new period of definitely pretty unpredictable throws of the dice. So that's a, a, a little look at the here and now. After the break, let's look at the distant future. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. Now, I'm a fan of science fiction, both for escapism, but also because I think that uh, good science fiction is often one of the best ways of trying to think about how the world may well change, frankly, more so than than many uh, more conventional futurists. In that context, um, it is uh, shameful how long it has taken me to get round to reading Mikhail Suslov's Of Planets and Trenches, Imperial Science Fiction in Contemporary Russia. That's from the Russian Review in 2016. And a key and interesting feature of the article is just this focus that there is within Russian science fiction, generally, for on rewriting, salvaging, or recreating history. Um, and it's everything from the so-called sort of chalk of destiny from the Night Watch series onwards. Now, obviously, Suslav is focusing on precisely this conservative, nationalist, imperialist strand within science fiction and fantasy that you do find in Russia. I mean, I remember it was quite amazing when you go and sort of wander through Russian bookshops, the, the, the sheer density of, of, of um, books there are, particularly with this sort of genre of the, the so-called popadjanets. Uh, for some reason, I actually was curious, and I just put it through Google Translate, and it came up with Hitman which is very much not the case. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, Suslov translates it as the get-into-ers, which kind of makes sense. It's this idea of the... You know, typically, I mean, it's the modern man or woman who ends up somehow in, in history and changes that history. You know, think of Mark Twain's Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. And the interesting thing is precisely that this, therefore, allows for a rewriting of history to reverse the things that you wish hadn't happened. So maybe it's to stop Napoleon invading Russia or to push him back earlier, or it's to kill Adolf Hitler, or in, 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 in some cases it's actually even to forestall Perestroika and stop, as you would think of it, Mikhail Gorbachev from bringing down the Soviet Union. So, you know, this whole genre of popadanstva, you know, is, is an interesting kind of, uh, well, for want of a better word, wish fulfillment. And that's crucial because, look, science fiction, all science fiction, is an expression of a national culture's dreams and fears, its utopias and dystopias. And therefore, you know, it, it, it does say interesting things about you know, what that, that particular culture is going through, what it's processing, um, and its sense of itself and its sense of the world. And look, there are absolutely, within Russian science fiction, I mean, there's certainly lots of dystopias. I 
thinking of, for example, uh, back in 1986, still in Soviet times, we had Vladimir Voinovich, the dissident writer, his uh, Moscow 2042, which apart from the quite brilliant conceit of the fact that uh, the the Soviets had uh, come to terms with the realities of the situation and Pravda Actually, the newspaper now came printed, already printed on roll, pre, pre-perforated rolls um, for then use as toilet paper. Um, but more broadly, though, you know, it presented a Russia in which there was this uh, sort of bastion of uh, highly advanced Moscow surrounded by devastation and, and ruin because of the mismanagement of, of the party all presided over by the Genialissimo, who was uh, described as simultaneously the general secretary of our party, holds the military rank of Generalissimo, and moreover stands apart from everyone. And, I mean, okay, no one would call Putin Genialissimo. But nonetheless, the idea of a kind of a, a personality cult around an individual person who not only has absolute control over all aspects of society, but who also um, you know, ensures that there is the, I suppose we'll throw in another little to Russianism, the kind of Patyomkin city of Moscow with all its glories, regardless of the cost of the rest. I mean, again, it's just, you know, one could call this a sort of a, a takeoff of, of Stalin. One could call it in some ways a takeoff of Peter the Great. You know, it, it is a kind of a, a classic trope. Other kinds of, of dystopias, well, you know, I've, I've long felt that uh, Vladimir Sorokin's 2006 book, Day of the Aprichnik, is one of the best books to try and understand modern Russia. It presents a kind of reincarnated, near-future realm of a kind of a new Ivan the Terrible, and his thuggish and deeply corrupt, but nonetheless also fanatically loyal Aprichniki, who spend their time basically running scams and embezzling what they can, and also clamping down on, on anyone who looks like a, a threat to the regime. I mean, that really is in some ways a, a fever dream, but nonetheless a recognisable fever dream of, of where Russia is going. So, but the point is, in some ways, the dystopias for want of a better word, interest me less. It, it, it's too easy with Russia to paint downbeat, negative portrayals of what can happen. More interesting, precisely, are the more, if not, I would say, utopian, but nonetheless, the, the, the positive images, particularly expressed through this imperialist vein of science fiction. I mean, for example, we have someone like uh, Mikhail Yuryev, who back in 2006 wrote this in a very, very widely distributed book, um, The Third Empire, Russia as it ought to be. And you do get a sense of quite what kind of a book it is, because the um, barking mad nationalist philosopher Alexander Dugin actually provided a blurb that said, this is the Russia that one should kill and die for. And you know, this book, it, it presents a picture of the world in 2054. And in talking about, shall I say, the backstory, it mentions uh, Vladimir II, the restorer, who had um, you know, basically you know, built a Russia that incorporated within it Belarus as well as breakaway regions of neighboring countries. Now, look, this is 2006. You know, it was not that prophetic 
I mean, one really could, could, could see that already happening. But the point is that in some ways it gets baked into this notion of that's how Russia ought to be, and that's a necessary step onto, again, this, this third empire. So it's actually already trying to fit Putin into a, a future history that is an imp implicitly positive and imperialist one. I mean, in some ways that's, without necessarily the, the mentions of Putin, you know, even more striking in the writings of Konstantin Drykov. Now, he's a Kremlin insider and a political technologist, and it shouldn't really surprise us if political technologists get, get in on this business. After all, they are professional fantasists. Anyway, he generated, sort of kicked off this massive ethnogenesis, sorry, ethnogenes series, loosely inspired by, and again, another, I would suggest, barking mad philosopher, Lev Gumilyov, historian, geographer, and so forth. But anyway, he, he built his whole sort of vision of how human society evolves and works through these notions of ethnogenesis and what he calls passionarnost, passionarity. And in, and in particular, he talks about the fact that there just come certain times when certain peoples sort of have a, yes, an imperial, shall we say, urge. And in particular, he sees Russians as a, a super ethnos, kindred to, similar to the Turkic Mongols of the steppes, who are engaged in a sort of generational struggle with, with Catholic Europe. So it's all big clash of civilization stuff. And again, I mean, the, the, the point is, it, this, this ethnogenes became, and still is, such a phenomenon. It's not just that there are huge amounts of books. There are spin-offs, there are cartoons, there are computer games, you name it. And again, it's all based around this sense that somehow all peoples, but particularly Russians, have some kind of crucial national identity and destiny that expresses itself in what we would really regard as precisely imperial terms. And talking about political technologists, I mean, we can also mention in 2014, Vladislav Surkov, the political technologist, political technologist, wrote under his pen name Natan Dubovitsky, Without a Sky, which is a, a sort of novella, of a fairly post-apocalyptic, well, post-World War V world, you know, a world, a world war incidentally largely fought by drones, of a, what he called, non-linear war of all against all. And in fact, you know, non-linear war became used as another one of these sort of buzzwords at the time. It came out in 2014, and there was Crimea and the Donbass and so forth as a sort of alternative to, to hybrid war. So again, it, it's this idea that, in fact, what the, what the imperial brand of science fiction is presenting is a world in which conflict is inevitable and necessary. I mean, this is, this is not Star Trek and a sort of you know, united federation of planets, peaceable, boldly going, go and make friends with aliens and such like. Oh no, you know, this is one in which... Peoples, nations, and planets are in constant and inevitable competition in which the Russians themselves have some kind of particular manifest destiny which has to be expressed, even if at the expense of terrible and, and sort of catastrophic conflict. Now, I really should stress, this is not all Russian science fiction. This is a particularly strong uh, vein in, in, in the current 
genre. And, you know, one can look at, at Russian, sorry, at American, for example, science fiction, particularly at certain times, to express, you know, um, other values which are actually sort of quite problematic. Plus, of course, you know, a lot of science fiction writers are on the liberal side of things. I mean, I think it was, yeah, it was in June, I think, of last year, that Dmitry Glukhovsky, who is the author of the, uh, again, very popular Metro 2033 series, who actually ended up being proscribed on the charge of, you know, spreading fake news about the uh, special military operation. So, you know, again, let's keep that in, in, in perspective. But the reason I'm sort of stressing it, particularly the, the imperial science fiction vein, and also this incredibly popular um, you know, genre of the, the, out, the historical outsider, the Papadjanets who then comes and changes history because he, he knows how to, I don't know, uh, make gunpowder, or he knows what the enemy is going to do when, or he brings his Kalashnikov will, with him, or whatever else. I think that's really important because it carries with it this sense precisely that things could have been different. And there is this you know, huge, one would go to bookshops and see huge arrays of all kinds of, of different books in this genre, usually with very garish covers. And the whole point is exactly it could have been different. Things did not have to go the way they were. I mean, I think that's a really striking theme is this sense, it, it, it speaks to a dissatisfaction, a sense that roads that were taken should not have been the ones that Russia went down. And in particular, I think what's, what's fascinating for me is this provides an alternative way of actually thinking about Putin. Not in the sense that Putin is a Popadjanets, that uh, he's a sort of a man from the future come, come the past or whatever, but actually as a kind of... Russia as being caught in a sort of inverse Papadjanic situation of sorts. It's not about the modern man coming into the past. It's about the past intruding into the present. And look, obviously this is evident in the way that Putin has, and his regime has been trying to, to use all kinds of, you know, past histories, especially past historical wars, to try and explain and mobilize in the present. Not just the Great Patriotic War, but the struggle against Napoleon, the original Patriotic War, or indeed the Great Northern War, the 18th century struggle against Sweden, which always gets popped up every time the Swedes do anything to, 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 to annoy the, the Kremlin, or pushing it all the way back to the Mongol yoke and indeed the, uh, the period of the sort of gathering of the Russian lands which incidentally is a period in which we see the rise of Muscovy over Kiev. So there is this sense of, I would suggest, of history being very, very present, very imminent. And as I said, almost as if it's kind of bursting through in, into Russia today. And I think this is also a, a phenomenon that lends itself to, to this notion of the imperial science fiction genre. It's because precisely it is that sense of unsatisfied modern urges being met by reviving, reinventing and reinstating past experiences where Russia can at least think that it was the kind of Russia that it would like to be today. But as a final point, you know, ultimately though, if I have to think of one particular example of science fiction 
that actually made, really does, I think, open a window into the psyche of not modern Russia. I think it's really dangerous to try and talk about all of Russia. But shall we say, you know, that that fraction of Russia that uh, obviously is not just Putin and his friends, but cleaves to those ideas. It comes from 1999. And it was a thoroughly unofficial, almost in some ways one would call it fanfic, fan fiction, of one of the books that is still so beloved in Russia, that is Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And Kirill Yeskov wrote The Last Ring Bearer, which was in some ways a really fascinating piece of writing in that it essentially inverted the whole precepts of The Lord of the Rings. Instead, it posited that Mordor, the, the, the evil land ruled over by the vicious spirit of Sauron, Instead, actually, as being a land that is going through industrial revolution, and with it the sort of necessary processes that obviously lead to modernity, democratization, and so forth, that is facing an attempt to strangle it by the sort of uh, archaic feudal forces of the past, represented particularly by the wizards and the elves, and the, the poor downtrodden orcs who obviously in Lord of the Rings are presented as this sort of bestial and irredeemable creatures, are in fact you know, perfectly reasonable, rational individuals who are fighting the good fight and yet face this, this terrible propagandistic attempt to present them as, as subhuman and incapable of even the sort of the faintest positive impulse. And in some ways, I mean, that whole essence, the attempt to basically subvert and challenge an outside narrative and turn it round and make the you know, ostensible bad guys actually to be the misunderstood good guys, I think is, is I mean, hey, I mean it's, it's a really interesting intellectual exercise for The Last Ring Bearer. And look, you know, I really don't want to make it sounds as if I'm presenting Yeskov as being some kind of apologist of Putinism. But I think in some ways it speaks to a, a deep-rooted... Remember, this is 1999, so it was at the end of this period in which the, you know, really Russia was regarded as this kind of ghastly gangster state in collapse, because frankly, to a large extent, it was a ghastly gangster state in collapse. It speaks to a very kind of deep-rooted Russian sense of being misunderstood, misinterpreted, misrepresented, of being posited as really genetically the bad guys, and yet the self-satisfied hypocrites who do that are in fact representing forces of the past, not, not the future. Kirill Yeskov was not in any way writing imperialist science fiction. He was not in any way trying to lay the groundwork for, for Putin. But nonetheless, in his own way, I think he was tapping into a, a deep-rooted cultural need for some kind of sense of redemption and, re, and uh, reinterpretation of Russia. That in his own toxic, unpleasant, imperialist, and often, frankly, rather stupid way, I think Putin himself does. The trouble is this, exactly, that you know, Putin was successful at presenting himself as being you know, the champion of a misunderstood Russia. And people responded to that, not necessarily to what he proposed to do about it, because I, think, I don't think he knew at first what he was going to do about it. 
I think the interesting thing is going to be precisely that after Putin, and we always have to remember there will be an after Putin, this need will still be there. And it will be, obviously, in part for us to deal with, as I talked, mentioned in the past, but it is also going to be something that the Russians are going to have to work their way through. And that's why I do think that the last ring bearer, in its attempt to actually turn orthodoxy and our common understandings of the world on its head, for me, represents one of the best science fictional roots in to the modern Russian psyche. But then again, I'd say that because I want you all to go and believe that science fiction is, is worth reading. Anyway, thanks as ever for listening. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. Oh, <laughs> you